Hello and welcome to this interview with Dr. Paul Morland and Philip Pilkington, authors of the brand new ARC report, Quantifying the Demographic Trilemma. They're forecasting how we're going to face a demographic collapse if we don't avert course. Thanks very much for coming in, and gents. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good to see that you survived the excoriation of the Port Cullis House event that uh, I decided to show our audience. I mean, you... I think I took the beating on that one. Yeah, yeah and you, you provided a very spirited interjection. But don't worry, I'm not going to be nearly as mean. Um, we're actually going to go into the, the causes and effects. We love of it. it. Yeah, fantastic. So if you don't mind for our audience who haven't read the report, it is in the description. I advise you guys go through it. We'll throw up some visual aids as we're going through some of this. But for those who haven't read the report, aren't familiar with your careers, do you mind just running them through what you've done, what the purpose of the report is, a few of the findings, etc.? So if it's okay, I'll start out with the general concept of the trilemma, which is something I talk about in my last book. Tomorrow's people, and then maybe Philip, you can fill in with some of the numbers. Um, so the idea of the trilemma is really that we face a set of choices as societies which work their way through politics. And really, we can have two, I argue, of three things. And just as a kind of shorthand, I call them egotism, ethnic continuity, and economic dynamism, the three E's. And my point is you can have two, but not three. And I use three countries as models for how this works. If you take Japan, ethnic continuity is very important for the Japanese. It's not even debatable. They want to be a homogenous society. They don't apologize about it. That's true of other countries in East Asia. I was in South Korea. Uh, similar attitude. So they really don't want immigration. They want ethnic continuity. Um, they want the egotism, and you can call it something else if you like, of having small families. They don't want kids for whatever reason. Lots of complicated social, political, economic reasons. Uh, Japan has had a very low fertility rate, well below replacement level since the early 70s. So they're choosing that egotism and ethnic continuity. What they're giving away is the economic dynamism. I'm old enough to remember in the 70s, uh, the 80s, when Japan was seen as the land of the rising sun, fantastic post-war economic growth, stopped really when their workforce stopped growing in 89, which is when that low fertility started to catch up. They have the oldest society in the world. They've got 70 to 80,000 people aged over 100, and that's growing rapidly. Huge burdens on the welfare state, the health service. Fewer and fewer dynamic young people coming into the workforce, fewer taxpayers, and all of that means lower economic growth and a very high debt-to-GDP ratio as the government struggles to fund all. So that's the Japanese choice. The British choice, I would argue, and I say choice, it's what we've effectively chosen, whether we've chosen it or not, is what we've ended up with, is we want to keep the economic lights on. We want to have a reasonable dependency ratio, enough people in the workforce relative to those who are retirement age. Unlike the Japanese, we've had 50 plus years of too few children. And the result of that is we square the circle, if you like, or triangle the triangle by mass immigration, very rapid ethnic change. And as I've argued in various places, more immigration in a single year than we had in the whole period from the Norman Conquest to the Second World War, possibly from the Anglo-Saxon arrival to the Second World War. So a completely transformed society. Some like it, some don't. Some wish to debate it, some don't. But that nevertheless is what we are effectively choosing. And the third leg of the triangle, if you like, the only country in the OECD with above replacement fertility, a whole child more than any other OECD country is Israel. They have three children per woman there. Certainly, it's a religious thing. The more religious have larger families, the less smaller families. The Arabs, Arab Israelis, the citizens of Israel, 
did have very large families and now they're pretty average at three children. That means they've got plenty of people coming into the workforce. And although they have traditionally had high immigration of Jews from around the world, they don't need high immigration anymore. With that fertility rate of three, they've got plenty of net flows into the workforce. They have a dynamic economy without needing to change the ethnic balance. Whatever other issues Israel has, and it's always going to be on the news for something, it's always worth looking actually at what's going on demographically in Israel. So that's the choice we face. Part of the reason for writing about it as a choice is to say, if we see mass immigration in our societies, don't blame some dark conspiracy, some Hungarian multi-billionaire lurking somewhere. Uh, it's actually a result of our fertility choices and our economic choices. This is the consequence of them. And the idea of, of our paper, and now it's time to hand over to Philip, I think, is to say, what are those trade-offs like in, in quantitative terms? How much immigration do we have to give up if we want to have more or less ethnic stability? And how, how much would our economic growth slow if we neither increase our fertility rate um, nor accept immigration? So over to you, Philip. Yeah, well, I think there's um, probably talk very briefly about how we got started in a sense on the paper. Um, I worked for nearly 10 years in investment management in the city and also in America. Um, and basically, we were I worked for an asset manager where we were basically managing pension funds. I mean, it was a little bit more than pension funds, but your main client is pension funds, right? Everybody in the asset management business knows that demographics are a huge deal. It's constantly talked about everything. Like if you hear about the stock market being overvalued now, if it's in a bubble, some people say, well, demographic change is driving the stock market. Now we haven't explored that in the paper, but I've written things on it in the past. When I got out, I realized that there was all this, I mean, I knew when I was working there, I wasn't in a bubble <laughs> like that. But after I was, after working in the financial sector, I realized that there was an enormous debate over migration, obviously. I mean, it's pretty, pretty hard to ignore at this stage. It's not just in Britain, as everybody knows, it's in Europe. It's even in America, which has a long history, I suppose, of, of migration, certainly far more so than Britain and Europe. And I thought, you know, what's missing here is that is the, is, the, is, the, is the demographic angle, that this isn't just, as Paul said, existing in a bubble. It's not like we woke up one day and said, we need lots of immigrants. Um, we did wake up one day and say we need lots of immigrants, but that was for a reason, and the reason was because of low birth rates. Now, this we knew this in finance. Everybody knew what the what the underlying demographic issue is. Now, I'm not saying in the finance sector that they're saying we need to solve the the fertility issue or anything. They're not. They just take it as a given, and people debate raising pension ages, and you know. You know, think about how to how to distribute the um the the existing pension fund the existing pension fund money that's there. Um. So when Paul and I met, I thought the trilemma was the perfect way of expressing this to people because people really didn't didn't seem to get it. But also, it struck me, you know, we can put numbers on this, right? Um. Uh, I'm an economist by training, um, by <coughs> reputation, I suppose, and building economic models is really complicated. Um, a lot of them don't work very well, I'll be frank. M most people now, I think, kind of laugh at economic models to a large extent. I don't think that is a terrible reaction. Now, not all of them are terrible, there's better and worse, but they tend to be very complicated. They tend to, for example, rely on assumptions about behavior. If anyone's ever taken an economics class, they'll know this. So economics models are a bit shaky. 
Now, they're used for everything. The uh, Office of Budget Responsibility in this country has economic uh, models that are basically used to set government policy at this stage. Um, demographic models, or at least demographic models with an economic edge to them, aren't as complicated. They're actually very simple. You can think of it, you can think of it in very simple terms that you need to know the amount of people that are born every year. You, know that you need to know the amount of people that die every year. That's called the natural increase in the population or decrease, natural change in the population, births minus deaths. And then immigration. And that's it. No, people, can't, people don't pop into existence out of thin air, right? The stork doesn't actually come and leave people. So births, deaths, immigration. Now, if you look at the statistics, the government statistics, they do lots of projections of births, deaths, and they don't really do immigration, which is kind of interesting, or at least they don't do it in a way that fits with the other ones. So the trilemma in that sense was actually kind of testable. If we have, if we have projections from official sources, whether it be the government ONS service, whether it be the United Nations, they do a lot of data, the World Bank does a lot of data, we have numbers that we project forward a fertility rate, and we have numbers where we project forward, for example, old age dependency ratios, which shows um, how, the, how the country's um, demographic composition is going to be there, the amount of young people relative to the old people. If you take these things together, you can produce estimates of migration and how many migrants are going to be in your country as a percentage of the total population. So that's where we came at it from a modeling point of view. I mean, will we get straight into the actual results or? I'm happy to, yeah, go for Okay, it. well, I mean, the headline ones were, the headline one was really, I'll, I'll, I'll say, the, the UK one, right? Because we said, okay, what, as Paul said, what happens if we just go on the path that the UK semi-consciously chose for itself? Stopped having enough children to replace the population in 1973 in Britain. Nobody really thought about it. It was the 1970s, everyone was wearing bad trousers and uh, you know, doing whatever else they were doing. <laughs> they were too busy to have kids. And then by the 90s, we realized this started to catch up with the country. And in order to keep the economy stable, we turned on the immigration tap. So there were decisions made, but you know, semi-conscious uh, as it were. So we said, okay, what if we keep doing this? And the numbers that we came up with were pretty shocking. That um, if, if we assume that the fertility rate stays the same as it is now, it's 1.7, I think, if it stays the same as it is now, by 2080, 38% of the population will be foreign-born. Now, again, we really want to underline... If we want to keep our dependency ratio if, stable. Oh, excuse yeah. me. If we want to keep the current dependency ratio stable, that means that... I mean, that's basically keep the economy stable. You can use it as kind of a euphemism for that because we need workers and the workers need to take care of the old people and so on. So assuming that, 38%. And again, we really want to stress that we're not taking any prejudgment on integration. Big topic. Other people cover that. You've probably had some people on that cover that. We're not taking any stance on integration. So anyone who is born in this country, even if it's to two immigrant parents, we're counting them as fully British, completely indistinguishable from the rest of the population. So 38% of people we're, we're looking at are foreign born. So they weren't born in the country. And then if we assume that fertility rates continue to fall, which we think there's provisional evidence that they will, we think they're probably going to fall to, to South Korean levels, which are very low. There's 0.8, I think, um, is, is the fertility rate there. Then by 2080, and remember, this is only 50, you know, 55 years from now, 50%. 
just over 50% of the population will be foreign-born. It was 54% by 2083, if I remember correctly from the... I think that's the specific number. Yeah. Now, that raises the obvious question of... Well, it raises a lot of questions, but it certainly raises the question of if you can have a country where more than half the people there aren't born here. This is the most controversial finding that we've, we've found. Now, we've run alternative models for that, um, the Japanese and the Israel one. The Israel one is pretty straightforward. You get the birth rate up. It's fine. I mean, we can talk about the implications. We may need to plug. We may there may need to be more immigration in the short term to plug the gap, but things work out. And if you run the Japanese model, the big takeaway number there is it goes to for every one old person who's retired, you'll only have two people in the workforce. And if you think about it, though, you know the two people will have to produce for themselves and for this old age dependent. You can, we kind of think of it as a care home. We can talk about it more, but we think at that point you're at a care home economy. But perhaps Paul can talk more about that, especially with respect to Japan, who's seen some of those dynamics already. Yeah, well, actually, it's funny that you say that, so I want to pick up on the migration thing in a minute. I just came back from Japan a couple of weeks ago. I had a discussion about this with my, my colleague Dan, who is a, a former venture capitalist, very astute economist. And he said, in terms of economic policy, we should be emulating some of the stuff Japan does, because even though their GDP growth has stagnated at 2% every year since the, the 90s, because I think they have, isn't it 0.5% every year they lose of their workforce because they age out and that's part of the demographic pyramid, their GDP per capita is trending better than ours partially because of mass migration, and they've got better agriculture policy and, and all sorts of you know, cheap steak over there. But they really do have that cultural continuity. I, I observed this when I went over there. It's just the fact that you can walk into a 24-hour shop, there's little to no security, and everyone's very polite to you, and people will always go to a vending machine, but there's no public bins because they take the rubbish home with them. You know, there's the, the kind of standards that we used to have before, and I will make a judgment, value judgment for the sake of the audience, before mass migration meant that there were cultural tensions. And those cultural tensions are going to be heightened, especially if you have a majority of the population who come from incompatible or different cultural traditions, and you're spending a lot of time trying to integrate those. Even as, as Eric Kaufman, who supervised your PhD, didn't he? Uh, even as he's written before, just trying to prioritise infrastructure questions at the government level is very difficult in diverse nations, because different interest groups are going to say, I want to prioritise this over here for this reason and that reason. So it, it, it erects barriers. So we should be following some of the Japanese model, but it doesn't overcome a lot of those social problems which have caused their birth rate to plummet. I mean, Stephen Shaw was at the event with you. We've got a great interview with him on the website. He's pointed out that the Japanese birth rate started plummeting since the oil shock hasn't recovered since. It's gotten worse since the 90s crash. You can't just blame it on the pill because only 3% of the Japanese women are on the pill. There are plenty of young Japanese men and women going out on nightlife, as we saw, but they're just not pairing up and having kids. So there must be some kind of social pressure there that's, that's stopping them from doing that. But the Japanese model is, is interesting to contrast the British one because the geography is also not too dissimilar. So I'm, I'm glad that you, you paired those two together. The one I wanted to pick up on with the migration question is that you're right, this has become very contentious. It's become a very radioactive topic per the Center for Social Justice event where a value judgment is immediately put on just observing those numbers. As you and, and Miriam said at the event, there isn't democratic consent for this from the electorate. There hasn't been for the past 10 or so years where everyone's voted for lower migration numbers. But also, I can't remember the exact number you gave, but one of the largest scale of immigration was America in about the 1880s to the sort of 1920s and 30s, right? And 
that was about a third of what is projected? It's, 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 it's 15 percent. And yes. just the easiest way to think about that. So it's 15 percent. It maxed out 15 percent of the population were foreign born. They were Irish, Italian and Poles mainly. Um, right now in Britain, we're at 15 percent. We already have the, so the largest social, I could think of it as a social experiment, right? Because that's what it is. And the, the largest successful social experiment, now there's a lot of caveats to that, but the largest successful social experiment where those groups went to America, they, they had 15% of the population foreign born, and then they subsequently integrated. By the way, that integration took a lot longer than people will, will make out, but it did work. Okay, Britain is at that point right now. Okay, it's at 15% right now. And yes, as you say, if our projections show what they show, which I, I think they're probably going to prove to be pretty accurate, uh, more than triple that in, in the next, uh, what, two generations? A generation and a half? Maybe I can pick up on some of your points on Japan, because each of these models has its ups and its downs and its attractions and its negatives. Um, the fundamental... Pro Japan, of course, is a very functional society. They do value their ethnic hom homogeneity. I think it's a perfectly valid debate to have about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. It has pros and cons. Uh, all sorts of people have written about that. I think it's a, a subject which the Japanese take for granted. Ethnic homogeneity is a wonderful thing they don't want to sacrifice. In Britain, it's something we can hardly debate because to suggest it isn't wonderful to have an ever more diversified and, and multicultural society is something that's hard to articulate. So I think there's a good debate to have about that and we should be much more prepared to discuss it. But whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, a more homogenous society, by choosing to combine that very low level of immigration, there is immigration in Japan that's low, uh, historically low as well, uh, with a refusal to have larger families. You end up with an economy, yes, the GDP per capita is reasonably high, but Japan is not sustainable. The Prime Minister of Japan has talked about civilizational collapse. Remember, given where we are now, the worst effects are only beginning to be felt. Japan's population in absolute terms has only been falling for a few years. If it goes on, and it almost certainly will go on falling for decades and decades and decades, you end up with a largely depopulated country. You end up with small town villages being deserted, small towns turning into villages. Very hard to justify or support uh, investment in infrastructure in remote areas. People will tend to concentrate in Tokyo. You've got a whole industry in Japan of people who go into flats to fumigate them after old people on their own die and are forgotten about. They don't have any offspring. Um, but more concretely, so you can talk about the, the social downsides of that rather lonely, atomized society. <coughs> that all sounds a bit intangible, but just think about the fact that Japan has got a debt to GDP ratio, government debt to GDP ratio of 250, approaching 250%. Now people started panicking around the Liz Truss era, when it was looking like it might go to 110 or 120 or goodness knows what. So Japan has got a huge debt to GDP burden. And some people, certain economists, and I think Philip understands this better than I do, but some will say, oh, that's fine, the Japanese are buying the debt up themselves or, or some such. But the idea that an economy can go on and on, getting older and older with fewer and fewer workers and more and more old people, even if you change the retirement age, that has a fairly small effect. At some point, People might say, and almost certainly will say, one imagines, I don't trust that this debt will ever be repaid. There'll be an inflection point, quite possibly a panic point, in which 
at which point the Japanese government will either have to cut expenditure radically with huge negative economic consequences, or it will have to fund its uh, expenditure by huge rises in interest rates. It will have to offer much higher interest rates to attract that capital, which itself will have a terrible effect on the economy. So the idea that you can go on from 100 to 200 to 300 to 500% debt to GDP ratio, that is a an economic, a financial manifestation, if you like, of the fact that this is not a long-term sustainable policy. And although Japan has many things going for it, I don't think it's sustainable. And also, let's not lose sight of the fact that Japan has shrunk in terms of its economic force in the world. It's shrunk in terms of the R&D it does as it's got older. It's just become much less of a force in the world. And if the whole Western world is going down this path, and even the States, which traditionally had a higher fertility rate than much of Europe, is going down this path. And, and countries like Italy and Spain, even France, even the Nordics, if we're all going in this direction, uh, we may have a few decades of quite decent per capita GDP, but there are all sorts of ways in which its unsustainability is going to manifest itself financially, economically, politically, socially. Yeah, I, can I just, just some of the stuff on Japan, because there's some of, some of the stories that go around, the positive stories that, that go around by Japan are true. I think some of them are a little bit misleading. So on the GDP per capita front, Japan has a relatively high GDP per capita statically this year. Its GDP per capita growth, though, since it started to age, has been very, very poor. Now, we can compare that to British growth over the past 10 years. But as my boss used to say, it's the tallest aura. I mean, you're comparing something to a very poor, poor outcome initially. The other point is that in economics, there's only two real sources of, of, G, of GDP growth in the long term. It's labor force growth, which is what we're talking about, demographic change, and productivity growth. Japan has had, until recently, quite high productivity growth, and that's what's driven its per capita GDP growth. It's had that growth because it's a very manufacturing-dense society. Britain isn't like that, and our productivity growth has been in the dish for 15 years. It's been basically stagnant. So that doesn't look great. The third thing I'd just say, on top of the issues with government debt and so on, which I, I think th that it's a wider debate, but ultimately I think Paul's right, it's probably not sustainable. The real problem is inflation, because as everybody, I mean, I'm, I'm sure everybody knows that most, the prices in general are dictated by the laws of supply and demand, right? For the most part, that is true. That is also true of people, of workers, okay? The, the price of workers is set in line with supply and demand. And what's the price of workers? It's wages, okay? Now, what's the largest cost for a company? The wage bill, right? Wage bill, then I think you have energy, then you have <laughs> overheads, right? So um, if you get a shrinking workforce, a shrinking population, the demands put on them, remember, because there's still this big um, inverted pyramid of old people who still need to consume, you know, jello and whatever. <laughs> Um, they, they will require the labor. So there's pressure put on the labor market as it shrinks. And when the pressure is put on the labor market as it shrinks, the wages should go up. What we've seen what happens when wages go up in this country for the past three years, you get inflation. Inflation becomes a huge problem. Now, just really briefly, why hasn't it been a problem in Japan? It's a really interesting uh, topic that's not widely understood. The fact that wages haven't gone up in Japan and in fact have remained flat is the reason that we've seen relative stability in Japan for the past 20 years. And the reason is because they get paid on this really interesting bonus system. 
where about 30% of the average salary comes at a, as a bonus at the end of the year. And the management used this to basically cut wages when costs increased. It's an inflation control mechanism. Now, we wouldn't accept that in the West. Workers here wouldn't accept that, not just due to trade unionism or anything else. We just wouldn't accept it. The reason it's accepted in Japan is because there's this culture of respecting elders and the elders run the companies and the young people are expected to work and take these flexible wage cuts every year and everybody tolerates it. I think if that's ever tried in a Western country, the young people will rebel against the old. So I just really want to emphasize that um, there's been a great book written by former Bank of England economist um, Charles Goodhart and Manash Pratan is his, is his co-author. And I'd really, really um, uh, uh, worth checking out because they've been the first ones to highlight that an aging economy, despite what Japan shows, Japan's a strange outlier due to this wage issue, an aging economy is a seriously inflationary economy. And it won't be the sort of inflation we've seen for the past two or three years, which goes up and goes down. It'll be a constantly rising, not hyperinflation or anything like that, but constant what we've referred to over the past three years as cost of living crisis. The lifestyles will just go down. We've seen it this past three years. We've had a taste of inflation. That could go on. I mean, that in theory should go on as the population ages and it should scale. But they make the point in their book, which I think is a very good one, is Japan's been cushioned from that also to some extent by the fact that it had a very large manufacturing base and that as its workforce contracted, it was able to outsource an awful lot of manufacturing to China, where labour was a lot cheaper and when there were a lot of people. China's going to go through a, a demographic contraction faster than Japan. It's got a better starting point, but it's got a lower fertility rate. So the idea that you could forever outsource that part of your economy to China and let the rest of your economy take the hit, if you like, and, and use the contracting workforce for services at home, that 30-year bonus of that very large Chinese workforce both for demographic reasons and because there were tens, hundreds of millions of Chinese peasants moving to factories. That was a one-off huge labour inflow into the global economy, which allowed countries like Japan and others to divert labour from manufacturing. And that's over. Uh, that, and that's over in China, and it's going to be over in India sooner than we expect, given where fertility rates not are moving. Not that India was ever such a big manufacturing hub. But I think the point is that if you're a leader in this, if you're an early adopter of low fertility, if you like, like Japan and to some extent Britain and other countries in the West, you're able through outsourcing or immigration, however you manage it, to take advantage, to, to cushion yourself by the high fertility of those countries that are further behind you. But we're now seeing this low fertility rate spread globally to some very big countries. And so that cushion is simply not going to be there. I mean, something I've talked about in the past, we, we in Britain are used to this idea of lots of cheap Irish labour, used to have very big Irish families, Ireland was very poor, and every year thousands of Irish people would come here, and there was prejudice, but they've integrated pretty well, lots and lots of British people have got Irish ancestry, um, that's over. Ireland has small families, and the Irish are no longer poorer than the Brits, quite the contrary. So it's not to say no Irish people are coming over here, but the idea that we'd have this endless flow of cheap Irish labour same with Poland. Poland used to have a high fertility rate. Poland left. Uh, communism was, was abandoned effectively in the early 90s. Uh, a well-educated population, quite a large population, and quite a poor population. 
And we had a huge inflow of Polish immigration into this country, doing a lot of the jobs that might have been done by people who weren't born in the early 70s, say, as the fertility rate came down. Um, but that's going to end as well. Poland has a low fertility rate now, and uh, it's no longer much poorer than Britain. Go forward 20 years, 15 years, even 10 years, perhaps, and it will be hard to see why, en masse, Poles would want to come to the UK. So I think we partly offset, and Japan, to go back to Japan, has been able to offset this low fertility rate by the fact, either immigration in the case of Britain or in Japan, relocating jobs to a China which had a huge sur surplus of population. Those surpluses just aren't going to be there in the future. Yeah, to pick up on some of the connective tissue with Britain and Japan, there were some fascinating things you said there. Some of the things that I'd noticed as a comparison point between the two was inflation, productivity, and the iceberg that's lurking beneath all of this is the social care burden, which is definitely going to push up the, that debt-to-GDP ratio. So as with inflation, one of the pressures on that related to the, to the debt is that the government obviously has an incentive to conduct quantitative easing because it cheapens the debt. And all that does is drive up inflationary pressures for the working population, which discourages them from working, which lowers their incentive to be productive and spend fewer hours at work. What I did notice at Japan is they have a rather toxic workplace culture that I think you're going to get a they're going to reach past the point of equilibrium where you can suck more productivity out of a diminishing workforce by just exhausting them. Like there were Japanese guys that will go out and because it's part of the workplace culture to respect the the corporate heads. They will go out drinking, doing karaoke all night, and sleep on the train. And that means that, one, you don't have time to have that family, but also, two, you're going to be exhausted if you're doing that all of the time, participating in the social culture that's expected of you at work. And so if the workforce is shrinking and their time to recuperate is shrinking, their productivity is going to shrink, and so the economy is just going to start slowing. And so if you're not going to have the same productivity extracted from the economy, who's going to pay for the increasing social care burden? Well, okay, well, just we'll have to put it on the debt. Inflation becomes a cycle, depowers people, and the social care burden is something that Britain is facing at the moment. We've decided to solve it through migration. A really disturbing stat that I saw from the WHO is they did a social care survey and they found that I think it was one in three social care workers admitted to being frustrated and abusing their patients at one point in time. So having that as a factor means you can't necessarily rely on institutional care to have the same quality as the kind of close-knit families that you might see in Asian countries, particularly India. I mean, you get stories all the time of Indian tech CEOs and high-powered executives saying, well, I've been working in Silicon Valley for some time, but actually my elderly mum needs me, so I'm going to fly back and take some time out of work for a bit. We just don't have that over here. We don't have the respect for elders' culture, as you said. The Japanese are trying to solve it through automation and robots. Okay, that, that doesn't sit very well with me that we're going to automate elderly care and, and outsource all that, because what if something goes wrong? So what we do need is larger, more interconnected families. It just doesn't seem with the Japanese and the English UK models that we're going to get that. Instead, it seems that we're going to get a lot of negative externalities, if I'm reading that correctly. Well, I think the life for an older person in a world where there are more and more old people and fewer and fewer young people is not going to look very nice. And in fact, in Japan, they have tried a lot of automation. Apparently, they've given up on a lot of it. So where we stand on the technology now, we may come back to talk about whether technology is a way out of this problem, and we don't think it is. Um, but certainly the technology in the old age home is something that has proved disappointing. One argument I make is that if you are in a world where there are fewer and fewer workers and more and more old people, and the old people can simply not rely on the state, whatever the state does, it can't conjure up workers. 
um, then you are actually going to rely more and more on your kids. So actually, there is a, a mechanism inbuilt, if people will think about it, to say that as society ages, that's yet another reason why you should have a family of your own and not expect the state either to be able to pay your pension forever, just as you should make personal provision for your support. Because if you look at the demography, the state's simply not going to be able to fund you with the lifestyle you'd like. But the state is not going to be able to provide the support you'll need in old age, which doesn't mean, oh, the answer is have lots of children and you'll go and live with them and that will be the solution. But whether there is an NHS in 50 years, whether there are state pensions, whatever there is, you're going to be better off if you've got children helping you navigate your way around that when you're in your 80s. Now, I would hate to think that's the only reason to have children. I think there are lots of good reasons to have children. But if you're childless in a world like Japan, and we're all heading in that direction, life's going to be pretty tough. Yeah, this, this um, speaks to a kind of talking point that I've been trying to get out there, that what's actually happened beyond the contraceptive revolution and everything like that, I do think that that personally is, is very important. But, but really what's changed, what's really fundamentally changed, if you look at the 19th century, for example, in this country, where you look at Africa right now, they view children as an asset, right? They view, they view children as an asset to work on, on the farm and as an effective pension fund to take care of the elder people in old age. And that's, I'm not saying that's why people had children in the 19th century, but it was part of the reason. And even the wealthy people saw large families as, as on, on, honorable, you know, you're able to pass on aspects of the estate and so on. Today, we tend to view children as a liability, and it's, it's understandable why children are expensive. Now, they're not as expensive as, frankly, the propaganda will tell you. Um, okay, maybe you won't be able to go on the fourth holiday this year to Bali or something like that, fine, because of the childcare costs, but it's not completely unaffordable. A lot of that stuff's a bit of a myth, and most children in, in human history have been brought up in far worse circumstances than even somebody on 35 grand a year in this country can manage. But we do view them as a liability. But as Paul's saying, that increasingly looks like short-term thinking. If you get caught out in the game that's currently being played and you end up childless in a, aging in a world full of old people, the results could actually be quite scary. And I've kind of been saying that the, for want of a better term, the new right or whatever they want to call themselves, should be kind of inverting the old 1960s revolutionary stuff that gave rise to this stuff. They used to say the personal is political, right? And you're supposed to go out and embrace all these lifestyle choices because doing so changes society. Well, the personal is kind of political here too. Have the kids because then you'll actually be able, you know, you'll have a much better shot in a world of full of old people and bad state care. And as you said, uh, uh, state care that's um, increasingly hiring people who aren't uh, very suitable for it. And, I mean, that's just a wage issue, right? They just need to get the cheapest people in the door. Um, but, you know, you'll fare a lot better in that world. And then hopefully if everyone kind of does it and we have a first, you know, we, we kind of get the movement behind that, then there could be a long-term aspect to that too. But I definitely, I definitely think people need, and we can talk about that in terms of policy and stuff, people need to start thinking of children as an asset again. Again, not saying that's the only reason you should have kids, but that mindset should, should needs to make a comeback, frankly. Yeah, well, we, the household used to be the primary unit of economic and civic engagement, and now it's the individual. And so if individuality is the thing that defines you, okay, then autonomy, you, can, you can't quantify it. All you can do is endlessly quantify things that get in the way of it and remove them as a barrier. And so if you want to be a 
a self-governing sovereign person that has no dependencies that they can't just drop at, at any notice, kids kind of get in the way of that. They get in the way of that holiday or that career promotion. Now, there are much more intangible goods, there are economic goods, there are civilizational goods attached to that, but it's hard to make the case within the paradigm of pure atomized individuality. And often, unfortunately, as, as Stephen film, Stephen's film shows, people don't realize that that individuality has its downsides until it's far too late for them to correct it, which is the message that we should be putting out there. You're absolutely right. I think that, that dovetails quite well then into the, into the third model that you use, which is Israel, because I wanted to ask what kind of narrative can be put out there to convince people to be having kids? Because I know Eric did a book, Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth? He had a bit of this in White Shift as well. And he was looking at essentially the rate at which the Amish population is increasing in the US. The US is going to be majority Amish by like 2100. It, 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 it's mad. I, I don't think it would quite get there, but it seems to be the only religious communities insulated from the individuality narrative, the reliance on technology and things like that, are the ones that still value children as both an asset and an intangible good. So is that the case with the Israelis? Israel's an interesting case because certainly if you look at fertility by self-identifying religiosity, there is a very clear correlation. The largest families are had by the Haredim, the people who are ultra-Orthodox, who live in lives we would consider very clothed, closed and who are clothed accordingly. The what they call the national religious people who will go to university, serve in the army, but are strictly observant, have a fairly high fertility rate. People who are traditionally minded, perhaps they have a Sabbath meal together and have a Seder service. That's kind of traditionalist approach. They have a slightly lower fertility rate and the seculars have the lowest of all. But they all have a fertility rate which is reasonable. I mean, even the seculars in Israel, and this could change. The latest data suggests that even the seculars have somewhere around two children per woman, and the ultra-Orthodox perhaps six or seven. So there is a religious spectrum in Israel certainly going on. Um, but I think it's, there's more to it uh, in Israel. I think the case in Israel, in fact, I wrote about this in my first book, which was a publication of my, the PhD, which I did with Eric. In that, I certainly argue that the Israeli case is unusual and probably based around a sense of existential struggle. Uh, I don't think it's about Judaism per se, because American, liberal American Jews have exceptionally low fertility rates. It really is this sense of back to the wall and a sense of your neighbours wanting to destroy you. And it could go either way. It could lead you to be very depressed and very nervous. I'm very concerned to bring children into this world. But in the Israeli case, for whatever reason, it's cultural, it's very complicated. It has given rise to a very pronatal culture. It's not hugely supported by the government. There is child benefit. It's not massively generous. There, is, there are rights for women in the workplace. They're not fantastic. Uh, you have to go back fairly early. There's not lots and lots of maternity leave. It's not exactly the Scandinavian model. And this leads me to think that it's very deeply cultural which makes you think there's a limit to what governments can do. You can't replicate Israel, either the religious spectrum or the sense of uh, back to the wall and precariousness of everyday life. Um, you can't and wouldn't want to replicate that in Western societies. So this is something I've written about in my next book, which I hope will come out next year, Procreate or Perish. Really, we have to look at the world as a whole and look at all the lessons we can draw from different groups, from religious groups, from countries like Israel, from countries like Georgia, where there was an intervention by the church, which seems to have 
increased fertility rate, to Hungary, where the government's very focused on it. If we are serious about this trilemma, and we seriously make the choice that we don't think the Japanese route sustainable, and we don't want to become airstrip one with an ever-shrinking population of old, of old people of previous generations requiring more and more support from more and more mass immigration. If we don't want those two models, then we can start by saying we must raise our fertility rate. And then we have to, how do we do that? To what extent is it government policy? To what extent is it social change? To what extent is it culture? To what extent is it the kind of role models that people like uh, maybe David Beckham, say, or Prince William, manage to show families as something you might aspire to, you might actually want to have children as being cool or something you, you, you see as an objective to uh, lead your life towards rather than an inconvenience. It's a really complicated question. How do we get the fertility rate up? There are no simple answers, but I think a first step is to understand that it is necessary if we want to be a nation, not just a collection of people who've come here to support the previous generation of elderly. And if we want to have the kind of economy that functions, if we want those two things, then we are going to have to find some way of cracking this low fertility problem. Uh, religion clearly is part of it, but it can't be the whole answer. We can't expect the country to be re-evangelized or converted to the Amish religion. That's not going to happen. And as Eric points out, what really works, if you want supercharged um, population growth in the developed country, is someone like the Amish, the groups like the Amish, which number one, have a very high fertility rate, but then number two, by being apart from the rest of the world, manage to retain a very high share of the next cohort. It's no good having six or seven children if most of them then go out into the rest of the world and behave like everybody else. So if you want that supercharged Amish style uh, population growth, which we don't want for the whole society, I'm not suggesting we should have a fertility rate of six or seven, but it works in these small isolated groups. It wouldn't work in that kind of way in society as a whole. So I think we have to take a fairly broad look and a fairly imaginative look culturally, religiously, politically, socially, economically, policy-wise at all the things we can do. The first step is to say this is an issue and we do nationally want to raise our fertility rate. Now that's not something that government has ever done in this country and it's not something that I think is yet socially acceptable. So even to start the conversation we, we need to take a first step. And I think this paper, the sorts of things Philip and I are writing, uh, the sorts of things that MPs like Miriam Cates are saying, unfortunately there aren't many MPs like Miriam Cates, um, we need more Miriam Cateses. And we need more people entering this conversation to convince people, to persuade society, to persuade government that this is an important issue, that we do need to address it. And then collectively, I don't have all the answers. I don't have a blueprint. But I looked around and started to gather together what we can learn from different places. And I think as a collective enterprise, we need more people doing this, thinking about it, talking about it. Then I think we stand a chance of solving it. I think it's also worth saying another thing that we'll say that's incredibly controversial and will get us in trouble. So I'll just say You're it, on the Lotus Eaters. You've got no worry about cancellation. <laughs> I might even get in trouble with some of the listeners to the Lotus Eaters. Because I gave a, I gave a speech at NACON this year and it actually got a very good reception. What I pointed out was I was kind of taking, taking aim to, at, the, at the liberal conservatives, right? And I was saying that <laughs> capitalism itself may not be very good for fertility rates. Um, 
okay, what do I mean by that? Well, I wrote I wrote an, uh, an essay prior to us releasing this study, prior to us even meeting for the journal American Affairs, um, called the the real contradiction of capitalism. And the contradiction of capitalism that that I was talking about was that um, uh, you know, Paul Paul will get into the nitty gritty details of when this correlation doesn't work, but for the most part, a correlation between uh, per capita GDP, that is wealth and fertility rate works pretty well. Now, when you get out to a certain level, it doesn't work so much, and, and Paul's talked about that in the past. But at a base level, it does work. And what it suggests is that a certain level of capitalist economic development produces, now maybe not necessarily so, but has in the past produced low fertility rates. I don't think that this is just a coincidence. I think that there are actually components to the capitalist system which do encourage low birth rates, right? And the way I think about it is basically this. What does capitalism want people to do? It wants people to do, t okay, first of all, what's, what's its motivation? Well, the Marxists are right. The, the, the motivation of capitalism is profit, okay? Capitalist firms want to create profit. That's, that's pretty much all they care about. I know we've had cultural revolutions in the boardroom recently and stuff, but their main concern is profit. Now, how do you maximize profit? Well, it's the same thing as maximizing GDP, right? Because I'm not saying profit and GDP are the same, but profit drives output, drives GDP. You maximize profit by maximizing the, the amount that's produced and consumed, right? So you maximize the amount of production and the amount of consumption. Now, what does that mean for the average person in a society? It means to maximize the workload that they're undertaking, the production of the stuff, whether that's actual physical, tangible stuff, or it's whether hours you're working at your service job or, or whatever, right? You want to increase the amount of the pe a people's life that they're spending engaged in production. The mirror image of that is that they spend lots of time at work and then they spend their free time consuming, right? So you've production on the one hand, consumption on the other. And, and that leads to the culture that I think we're increasingly seeing today. I'm not anti-capitalist, obviously not. Capitalism is an incredibly successful system. Communism's terrible. Okay, we all know. We all, we all get that. But that's not the only dyad. That's well, the that's, that is one really interesting point. It's not the only dyad. And we can get back to that because I think it's a maybe we are going to go into a post-capitalist society. But even if we're not, I think there's a big difference between the, the, what I'd call like normal capitalism of the 1960s, where production and consumption are one component of the economy. And then it's supporting something else, which is basically kind of the nuclear family, the white picker, white, white picket fence, the old kind of American dream as they used to have in the 50s and all that. And the kind of hyper-capitalism that we have today, it's capitalism pushed to almost this absurd point, work as much as you can, consume as much as you can, you know, live in the pod, eat the bugs, as they say, all that kind of thing. But those pressures are driving people, are capital's pressures. Now, the issue is, well, there's lots of issues around that, but one issue is, I mean, we've just spent the first part of this discussion saying that the aging population basically destroys the capitalist economy. It, it, it destroys it in every way. It produces inflation. It produces insane levels of government debt. It, it, you don't have enough workers. It becomes a care home economy. That's a contradiction. I mean, the Marxists should have highlighted this instead of the stupid contradictions that they tried to highlight. Yeah, I but suppose. that doesn't get them a dictatorship, unfortunately. So, Well, it, actually, it might because old, old people, right? Old people vote in disproportionate numbers. Is there an incentive for younger, stronger people to abolish democracy? Yes, I think there are. Did you see is. that Onward paper that came out recently? Yeah. So it's about 40% of Generation Z said that we should ignore the democratic mandate and have a military dictatorship. 
the pressure on that seems to me it should build because all these, as the population ages, more and more old people relative to young people and old people vote more than young people. So they'll be dictating the terms of society. It seems perfectly logical to me that it overturns democracy at some point, that they sell profit. In a nutshell, what you're arguing is that the, uh, the revolution may eat its children, but that capitalism, if it doesn't eat its children, it fails to produce its children and thereby it undermines itself. I think the other thing about that, you talk about business, but of course then that links to GDP, that links to tax revenues, that links to the treasury worldview, and that links to the link between business and government. And it links to a government that really doesn't want to talk about fertility rates and really wants to say, how do we get next year's GDP numbers up without thinking about how do we actually have an economy in 20 or 30 years' time. And I think we've reached a level of, of wealth and, and prosperity in Western societies where it's time to look at, we've actually got the time and resources to look at this very carefully and say, here is the state spending 40% of GDP how can some of that be redirected so that we're actually creating the seed corn of the future economy, and which is to have a future generation and not have a capitalism that undermines itself? So I do broadly agree with you, Philip. I think it's an extremely pers interesting perspective, and I thought your NatCon speech was very good. The only reason I would dissent from it a little bit is that if you go back to 1970, say, and you looked at all the countries and their GDPs and their fertility rates, the correlation was very good. So in a nutshell, tell me a country's GDP and I'll tell you it's TFR, total fertility rate, back in 1970. And that was the process of modernization happening. Now, when you get to 2020, that's still true of countries that are relatively poor and going through that modernization. Once you come out the other end, once you've got a certain level of prosperity and you've got above a certain level of GDP per capita, that starts to break down. So super rich America doesn't have a particular, hasn't until relatively recently, had a particular high per capita GDP, doesn't have a particularly bad low fertility rate. Whereas Greece, which is like, you know, very much hanging on to the developed world, has one of the worst. So the correlation breaks down. So I think the point I'm making is that there's a, a, a economic process whereby income goes up, and fertility goes down. And once you're through that, everything Philip says is correct, but there are cultural norms which then determine more whether you're up or you're down. Now, if you just allow capitalism to run riot, if you have a totally libertarian free market approach to things, if you allow business to sit in the seat of government effectively, then everyone's worrying about the next quarter's earnings, next year's GDP, the what we used to call the government borrowing requirement, whatever it is, that, that becomes very much the focus. And people lose focus on how do we make sure that there's anyone going to be here in 25 years' time turning on the lights. So I don't think Philip is calling for a, uh, a revolution, either Marxist or, or uh, pronatalist, at least with a capital R. But what we're both calling for is to look at the system, to understand its dynamics, to understand what makes it thrive, and what in the long time is undermining it, and get all of us to concentrate our minds. I say all of us, whether we are prospective parents, aunts and uncles, grandparents, politicians, business people, civil servants, to think about how this society has got indeed, how this economy's got its own inner contradiction, and how we can work together to redeploy the resources of society and the cultural resources, the economic 
and cultural resources to change that so that we can get back to a world we're only talking about a world with two to three children per woman it's not uh we're not saying we need to go back to chad or niger or britain in the 1850s it's just getting from where we are today 1.6 to 1.7 we've been below two for a very long time up to two and a half maybe where we were in the early 60s that seems like a really difficult challenge when you're a demographer and you know the data but from a sort of common sense point of view a world in which the average woman and we focus on women because the data is per woman but of course it's a couple one way or another um has two to three children that's only bringing it back into whack with what people actually say they want mm. This, this was thing. the point of the conference that Miriam ran the data and, and showed that um, if we allowed women to have the amount of children that they want to be having, we'd have a birth rate of 2.3. I, I mean, pretty much population solved, but I suppose that's a separate question. Well, that's, this is why I think we're on almost an exact same tract of thinking here with it's a question of what heuristic do we have to informs culture and policymaking? What do we actually value? And, and this is the sort of point that like Max Weber and Ivan Illich would have made about capitalism, which is... If you have a, a purely materialistic worldview, everything is trickle up towards the generation of hypothetical abundance someday. And so every action that you do is instrumental in getting to capitalism, not as the means of facilitating a good life and healthy families, but the generation of abundance as an end unto itself. So actually working and consuming is just a permanent state. And so in that, you can't justify taking time out to have kids. It's, it's an impediment to your, to your work life. This is why certain firms, and as much as you said, you know, there's, there's woke corporate over uh, overtakes of various boards. Well, one of the first things they did after the Roe v. Wade ruling was, was chucked out was say, we will subsidize employees to fly out of state to have abortions because that gets women straight back in the office very rapidly. And then at the government level, okay, well, what does our new chancellor announce, the managerial materialist in chief? He turns around and goes, okay, in order to facilitate women having more children, we're going to give subsidized childcare from, from nine months for what was it, 30, 30 hours a week? Something like that? And so, oh, okay, so you're going to pay a professional with more state spending to then get the mum away from her kids, sacrifice the quality of care that has been well-documented by people from Katie Faust and, and, and all, all, of, all of various studies that say actually the infant mother diet is the best way to raise them, to get the mum back into work and to make it so that childcare now has a dimension where money's changing hands. So it can GDP. register on the GDP, GDP. and tax. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And it's tax. just so rather than rather than actually creating growth through productivity or actually growing the population, you're just you're just seeding more realms of human activity to the balance sheet. And so your entire life is working and then the shadow work of consuming, as Illich would put it. So we do need to step outside that paradigm and stop valuing other things. And I think companies offering to freeze the uh, embryos of, yeah. of workers and so on. I think there's a debate within pronatalism about whether we should be embracing every new technology and thinking that's the answer or relying more on natural solutions and it's not necessarily a debate i want to get into now but i think in the case of companies in many cases it's probably true that they're thinking i don't think they're interested in in uh, having a, an above replacement fertility rate what they're saying is this gnawing issue when am i going to have children can i have children when, if we just push it out for 10 years. Don't worry, dear worker, uh, we'll freeze your embryos and you can just focus on being a good worker. And then maybe at some time in your 40s, you know it's there. Well, it's, it's, it's complicated, it's expensive, it's not ideal in all sorts of ways, and it's risky. It's not a solution 
that gives you anything like the probability of having children that just getting on with it in your 20s or early 30s uh, does give you. But I think it allows the corporation to say, we're doing something. And as I say, dear worker, just put it out of your mind and crack on. Yeah, and, But this is costing the public money. Mm. I think people need to understand this, that this corporate behavior, which I think is kind of insidious, actually, I'll be quite frank about it. It's creepy. It's weird. It's, it's, it's bad for people. I mean, we can go down the list. It's costing society money. I mean, if you, if you guys want to squeeze the last drop of worker, worker out of the worker lemon, you're costing everybody else money and you're undermining the capacity of the economy to reproduce itself. I, I, think, I think this needs to be talked about. I think it needs to be, I think the corporate approach to this needs to be widely discussed because it's, as I said, undermining the common good in a sense. It's undermining the, the workforce that, that these companies need and it's costing the public money. I, I don't know why. Well, you made an excellent point the other day, actually, at that CSJ event where you said, a woman, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, a woman takes a year or two out to have a baby and the, the company loses a year or two's labour and maybe slightly a year or two less consumption in the household or maybe more because it's nappies and so on. Um, the government's going to lose a bit of taxation revenue. But you're getting 40, a, a worker for 40 years at some point down the road in 20 years' time. So... From a kind of social return point of view, if you want to put it in those terms, and you know, as a parent and grandparent, not how I think about my children. But even if you take that holistic, top-down view of the economy, it's got to be a fantastic. Even with you know what discount rate you're using and all that, it's got to be a fantastic return. But because it doesn't show on the balance sheet this year, we're discouraging that woman from taking a year or two out. And we're saying, no, no, back to the workforce, back to production, back to consumption, back to tax paying, um, because we're worried about what things are going to look like at the end of the year. Have we met our targets and so on? But there's an enormous cost or there's a huge opportunity cost. And by the way, the same thing drives the immigration debate effectively, right? The, 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 if you look at the migration statistics now, we know that they're all, that not all, but the vast majority are legal because they're showing up in the statistics. Okay, so the visa has been issued. What we've seen in recent years is a labor shortage, right? We've seen this in the past three years. We've had huge, an overly full employment in the economy. We can go on about why that is. It's about five million that are on state benefits at the moment, isn't it? Okay, there are definitely people who probably could enter the labor force. We as there always have been. As there always have been. We could have a debate on that. But look, job vacancies aren't being filled. And what the pressure is on the government and on the treasury is issue the visa, issue the visa, issue the visa. And the business community are, are going to be putting pressure on the government to do that. And if you turn around in a government meeting or whatever and you say, hey guys, look, immigration's gone wild, people aren't happy with it, it's too high, what we should really do is get the birth rate up. They'll say, fine, do that, but we don't care this year. We need it this year, we need it this year, we need it this year. So I think highlighting these aspects that the economy itself or the capitalist economy, however you want to think about it, is putting these pressures on a society that already has these problems with low birth rates. I really think it's worth highlighting because these are a lot of the forces driving the debate. So it's right? a bit like St. Augustine, God give me low immigration, but not, not yet. yet. But not yet. <laughs> and maybe never, I don't care because I'm only CEO for another 10 or years. Or Prime Minister for another never, two. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, well, you know what, I really want to press on that actually, <laughs> not just because the point that you're raising is that the, the parameters for what is measured is all wrong. and it's for some reason, our 
our public intellectuals and our politicians are incapable of looking beyond the annual cycle. But because I was speaking to Miriam about this, and she said that you, uh, along her tract of thinking on the housing problem, because Migration Watch have been pretty fantastic on, on pushing immigration as having an adverse impact on housing with the current levels of immigration. By 2048, we're going to need 15 to 18 new cities, new developments the size of Birmingham to accommodate everyone. We're meant to be building 300,000 homes a year, but we're not meeting that target. So we're never going to meet the, the kind of targets to facilitate the scale of immigration that you're both projecting is, is likely. She also said that it's a function of the economy and of the political system that house prices are high and developments are low. And I know that as well as the boss of Next and the boss of Tesco and every time that one of these lords that has business interests goes on question time, they always push for more immigration to fill the job vacancies. But I believe the boss of like Barrett Newbill Homes also did the same thing. I think it's about 20-25% of the Tory party donors are, are property developers. So there's, there's a lot of pressure both from the, the cheap money system and from people that have stakes in keeping that system afloat so that the developments stay at an equilibrium level so that the prices are still high but they're still getting contracts to keep it at a, uh, an offset measure compared to the number of immigrants that come in and need housing. Am I on the right track with that sort of thinking? Or Well, you can, you can definitely be sure that the first people who realise that there are labour shortages are builders. Like every single time. If you're running a construction company, you're immediately going to see that there's labour vacancies. The biggest overhead by far if you're in the construction industry is labour, right? Expensive labour is a nightmare for you. And so if you're in the construction industry, you'll be keeping your ear to the ground about everything. I mean, I, I, I don't want to be too cynical, but I'd imagine when, when the Ukraine war kicked off, the construction sector in the UK said, wages are coming down next year, right? Um, as you say, construction, the construction sector is disproportionately in the lobbying game. Are those two things related? I think so. Now, somebody who is agnostic on these issues would say, well, it's not that much of a problem. Construction, the construction sector is just a good forward-looking indicator of what the labor market will look like. And that's true, right? Like if I'm, I'm watching for a recession in Britain at the moment, and the first thing I look at is construction employment numbers. Construction is the most forward-looking uh, sector in the entire economy for various reasons. And that's probably true. So if you're, if you're in government right now and you have these construction people uh, that are your backers, you're probably thinking to yourself, look, the, the money comes through the door and these guys are giving me a good read on the economy. And you're right in both senses. But yeah, they're absolutely uh, incentivized to uh, get the construction labor as, as low as possible. Um, in terms of the house pricing, I think one of the things that's massively missing from the story I'll be quite honest, I'm not sure how much of it is a supply constraint in the housing market. I won't make a strong case right now because it's a controversial case. <laughs> we require about an hour um, uh, to go through, and it's, I, I think I've only convinced Miriam Cates <laughs> in the entire country of this. But a lot of the reason that housing is, is so highly priced is because it's treated as an asset, right? And this itself is due, has a demographic component to it. I mean, everyone's heard of the Bank of Mum and Dad, right? And everyone knows what the Bank of Mum and Dad is. It's to get around the tax, right? You, you buy a property and you put it in the name of your kid. And maybe even you let, them, you let them live there. But why do you do that? You buy it as a financial asset, right? It's like buying stocks and shares or something like that. 
And in a society, okay, as people age, they accumulate assets through their life, right? When you're 20 years old or 25 years old, you're spending all your income then, right? You're not accumulating much savings. By the time you're in your mid-30s, you hope that you've accumulated a little bit of a pool of savings. And by the time you hit, say, 55, 60, you should be kind of peak of your, of your, of your savings. When you have that large amount of, of savings, you want to invest in assets, right? Now, we won't go into the whole effect on financial markets and so on. There is a link between demographics and interest rates and stock market valuations. But it should be quite simple to think through that if there's lots of old people in the economy and those old people have lots of financial assets and the young people at the bottom of the tier don't have much financial assets, very good probability that those old people are going to buy up the housing stock, right? Not out of nefariousness or anything, just because it's a good asset to invest in. They'll buy up the housing stock and rent it to the young people. And what that does is it financializes your housing stock. And it means that it, by definition, puts it out of reach of the young people. I think this is a huge thing going on in the economy right now that has far more to do with the uh, house prices that we're seeing than any supply constraint or anything like that. It's a perfectly logical uh, thing to happen. You can think of it almost like, imagine before the Land Reform Act in Britain, right? The way that, uh, the, that, um, that the system basically worked were, were um, landlords, who were usually the nobility or the minor nobility or whatever, owned everything. They owned all the property. Why? Because they had huge accumulations of asset wealth. And then they rented it out to their tenants. Or even prior to that, in feudalism, they had a serf, a, a master-serf relationship. This is kind of similar, but it's, it's the older people are going to end up owning all the land and the property and rent it out to young people. I firmly believe that's what's going on right now. And, and it is interesting worse. how we've moved effectively from a class politics to a generational politics. So to come back, I was saying, you know, if you go back to 1970, tell me a country's per capita GDP and I'll tell you it's TFR. If you go back to the 1970s, and even quite recently, Tell me a man or woman's occupation or income, somehow categorize his or her social category, and I'll tell you how he or she votes with fairly high confidence. Of course, there were always working class conservatives and there were Hampstead liberals, or, but, but statistically, it was a class game in which the working class in Britain voted Labour, the middle class voted Tory, and there were always, a, a, with, with exceptions. Now, come to the election of 2019, tell me the same data about social class and status, it will tell me almost nothing about whether someone has voted Tory or Labour. Tell me his or her age, and it will be a fantastic predictor. Whereas age back in the 70s didn't. So it's very interesting as our demography has changed. Our politics has effectively, at the electoral level, become much more of a gener intergenerational issue than a class issue. So what happens then when, on the political level, and then for the housing stock, migration aside, when the boomers start aging out and dying off, uh, is there going to be suddenly a freed up housing supply that's suddenly more affordable for this shrunken level of Generation Z? And what's the political landscape going to look like? Because as we said before, they aren't big believers in the post-war consensus, the, the democracy is the end of history style way of governance. What, what's, what's the lay of the land well, on spe that? Speaking as a boomer, I was born, in fact, it's my birthday today, something I mentioned to you oh, before. Oh, blimey. Oh, happy birthday. Thank there you, you very much. It's, it's quite a significant day because my birthday last year 
we reached 8 billion people notionally. Yes. So everybody wanted to interview me about... And this year you're stuck listening to this me. This year so I've sorry. got the pleasure of speaking to you two gentlemen. But as a, as a boomer by six weeks, so if I'd been born six weeks later, I wouldn't have been, if, if the cutoff really is the 1st of January 1965. Um, it very much depends whether we take the Japanese route or the British route. Because if we're going to take the British route, which is, yes, you've got this shrinking, eventually the boomers are going to die off. Um, I'd be at the tail end of that, I hope, but nevertheless. Um, if you follow that up by a larger and larger number of people to support them in the British model from overseas, then that's not going to mean you're, you end up with, with cheaper properties. But actually in Japan, if you go the Japanese route, and in fact, that's exactly, if you don't have the immigration, you do have the terrible economic problems that Japan is going to have and has already had to some extent, and that hollowing out of the working age population, then you do see property becoming much, as I believe it is much cheaper in Japan than it was sort of 30, 40 years ago. There's a tipping point. Yeah, there's a tipping point if you freeze, it's exactly as Paul says, if you freeze the number of people coming in. If you don't freeze the number of people going, coming in, you assume those people coming in, I think the average age of an immigrant is something like 25. So you have the same dynamics of the boomer, and then as the Gen X get older, they buy up the housing stock, rent them to the new immigrants, and so on. There is a tipping point. At a certain point, there just physically will be too many houses in effect. And that's what you see in Japan. I will add a caveat to that, though. It's true that the house prices have come down in Japan. Now, they were at a very high level. Japan had, had the second biggest, uh, I think the second biggest property boom, uh, boom and bust in the world in 1989, 1990, the largest being Ireland, 2008, 2009, that I lived through. Um, but, and house prices did come down, and you'd logically think they do, but my understanding in Japan is, given the, the wages, which we've said already, to keep the situation ticking over, have had to be maintained quite low, it's still very expensive to live in a city, and you still live in a one-bed apartment and stuff. And so what you've seen is that the, that I think Paul talked about it in his book, that there's literally abandoned properties out in the countryside. And you can say, oh, well, I can go and live out there. Yeah, well, you won't have a job, okay? <laughs> You'd be living, and there might not even be electricity at a Yeah, there's no one stopping the stores around there, the infrastructure's crumbling. There'll be nothing, there'll be yep. nothing. So what'll ha I, I, my sense is that even if you go with the Japanese model, what'll happen is you'll, you'll have a similar situation where everything will coalesce around economic centers, the older people with the assets will buy those economic centers. Like, um, I'd imagine that the average age of ownership in, a, in Tokyo is extremely high, just like we have here. Um, but there is a tipping point notionally in the, in the overall, uh, in the overall, in the overall uh, uh, property market. But I, I just like people to kind of focus on that because look at your, look at your, I'm not saying immigration doesn't make a, a difference to housing, it does, and I think we've just highlighted how. But actually think about it from your point of view, if you're a young person right now, your problem isn't that you walk through the door of, uh, of an estate agent to buy a house and an immigrant shoved you aside and said, no, I want to buy it, right? Your, your general experience is rent's really high. Well, look who's renting to you. Probably your parent's friend. <laughs> Somebody in your parent's age group. Okay, and they're extract, I'm, I don't want to be too like, nasty about it. They're extracting rent from you. You are working, they are extracting the rent from you, that rent is going to pay their retirement. It's all, an, it's mostly, I wouldn't say all, but it's more so an intergenerational game, in my opinion, than an immigrant versus not. And immigrant. then, of course, what will happen when the boomers do die off is there'll be a lot, the lottery of inheritance, which will determine whether you get a property. 
And, you know, when I started working in the 80s, it, mortgage rates were up and down like a yo-yo and sometimes very, very high. But it was much more affordable for someone on a reasonable salary to buy a house or get a mortgage for a house. In this financialized property world that Philip's talking about is going to depend on who your parents were, which isn't, it feels very unfair. So that itself is causing political discontent among the young and a very different political outlook among the young, a more revolutionary approach, you might say. And then, of course, there's a feedback mechanism, which is, it is one of the factors, and I don't want to overplay it, it's one of the factors that makes it harder for people to have families and start, get married, or not have families, uh, the, the, the cost of, of property. Now, I don't want to overplay that because, as I pointed out elsewhere in Britain, for example, and lots of other countries, you go to areas where there is cheap accommodation, where property is quite cheap, uh, we still don't have a high fertility rate. So I don't think cheap housing will fix this. And there's a flip side on the inheritance thing. I really want to make this clear to people. I know people are going to come in and say, there's some guy who used to work in finance defending the aristocracy or something. But I'm serious about this. If, if we're telling people that you, sh you, you need to go out, if you want to make society better and you possibly even want to make your life better when you're older, you, you go out and have a family. And then on the other hand, you're saying, well, and you shouldn't be able to give them the house afterwards. We need to think about that. We really do need to think about it. Like, I, I'm, I'm really, really reticent to go down the route of kind of like, oh, the ageing society is going to do X, Y, or Z, and therefore be careful on the inheritance tax. Actually, kind of like stuff like the inheritance tax and the debate around it is all in, as you might have said, the kind of liberal, liberal atomized debate. Like if I, honestly, like if I work all my life and I say, okay, I want to have this family and everything like that, I should be able to give it to the Absolutely. family. If you see what I'm saying, right? Yeah. So we need to not, if we're going to have this debate, we have to be very, we have to be very careful getting caught up into the really ultra utilitarian side of it. Um, we, we have to be able to talk about the aspects of unfairness that it brings into the system. For example, I think it's just, there is no upside and it's extremely unfair to have this old young housing uh, uh, system where the rent is being extracted upwards and the young people are doing the work. I don't think there's any justifying that system. Um, but inheritance, on the other hand, well, we're trying to tell people that the social unit should be able to be the family. So therefore, you should have freedom in that social unit to be able to encourage your kids to reproduce. Well, we don't want an intergenerational war now any more than we wanted a class war back in the 70s. Neither would, neither, that would not have been good for society, and an intergenerational war wouldn't be good for society either. But it would be a healthier set of relationships between the generations if we had a healthier population pyramid, and if we weren't heading to this top-heavy, overly-aged society, which is the result of not having enough children. Well, yeah, woke wouldn't have won if the current generation felt connected to a kind of cultural inheritance and... Uh, a, a non-lowered economic opportunity ceiling that wasn't passed down to them. You know, if they if they felt connected to the society and they felt they have upward mobility, they wouldn't need to flip the entire game board over. And what I'm seeing from the from the British projection that's emerging here is if we keep high immigration and inheritance tax, what you're going to get is a transitory gentocracy that institutes renting feudalism, and then when that's ushered out, you've got a a vagrant diaspora of younger people without families but without concrete properties and all their landlords have passed away and you're going to have cultural and asset-based jockeying with the new arrivals which are becoming an interest block 
various interest blocks because they've all got different cultures, are slowly becoming the majority. And so you've got economic turmoil and cultural turmoil that someone will step into to say, all right, I'm ordering all this mess. We're, we're scrapping all our normal constitutional norms because it's an emergency scenario and I need to take over. And you're going to have popular consent for that kind of dictatorial figure to come in and clean the mess up. And it's going to have that kind of emergency that gets a drastic measure. Now, frankly, I, I don't really want that. So it would be great if we could fix it in the interim. It could also just collapse. Yeah. I mean, it really could. Yeah. I mean, if you look, I, it's really... It's really overdone and sometimes a little silly to, to uh, draw analogies to the end of the Roman Empire. But in some Well, we're senses, three men in a room, so we've got to think about yeah, it. So we have to talk about the Roman Empire. But I'm just saying from the pure point of view of stuff, stuff starts to rot. Yes. You know, bridges don't get built. Everything kind of shrinks back to city level or to, or to small village level. Maybe that wouldn't work in a modern economy. So shrink back to behind the walls. We could do something like that. Well, this is the this is the thing that you were saying about the tech debate. This is why I've never wanted to use technology as the preconditions for individual freedom. Because with any complex system, when you start expanding all of the contingent factors, you introduce unforeseen errors. And particularly if you've got to maintain certain non-natural elements so that human beings can function. Okay, generations down the line, when we forget how to maintain these systems and repair them if they go wrong, then the certain contingent of humanity becomes obsolete. Like, imagine, imagine if we have fully renewable-powered bug pod people in the metaverse all the time. All right, one hiccup in the wires and someone doesn't know how to fix it in time, that entire tower block of people just goes off. Uh, I, know it's a, I know it's a drastic image, but do we really want to be that? Isn't it safer to be the sort well, of Amish that having a close-knit community my, of kids? My, my questioning of technology is a bit more uh, basic than that. I mean, I think you've probably thought about it in a more, slightly more futuristic way than I am. But my sense is, so when I say we are going to run out of people, either we'll need mass immigration if we can get it from anywhere, or we're going to have a Japanese-style uh, fiscal and economic slow meltdown and slow at first and then like the, like the bankruptcy, you know, it yes. starts slow and then all at once. first slowly and then all at once, exactly. But if we want to avoid that, people say, oh, don't, no, you, you, actually technology will be fine. And it's interesting, Elon Musk, was, who, who does understand the issues of demography and talks about them, he was saying to the Prime Minister the other day, well, uh, technology will take over jobs. So he didn't give a time limit on it. So I can't look out 100, 150 years. But I know that we've always had technology replacing labour. The Luddites uh, were smashing machines because they thought they'd lose jobs. If you'd said to somebody in 1800 in Britain that by 2023, what, 3 4% of the population was going to be involved in agriculture, they'd have said, well, what's everyone else going to be doing? If you'd said around 1900, 7 8% will be involved in manufacturing, they'd say, well, you'll have mass unemployment. So we're constantly inventing and creating new needs for labour. And technology is always, on the margin, taking away jobs. Good example would be the motor car. People would have said, goodness me, I, I, I grow forage, or I look after horses, or I breed horses, or I stable them, or I maintain the state. All these jobs around the horse economy, they all went with the motor car. But of course, a whole new set of jobs were created. So I'm not persuaded that ChatGPT or AI is going to be that revolution. It's always, there's the famous book, The Rise of the Robots, about 10 years old now, and by now we should all have been without jobs. Not quite what it said, but um, and the way I put it is ChatGPT, fix my tap, take mum to a doctor's appointment, sort out the leaking roof. There are so many, as our society has become less and less involved in manufacturing, for example, more and more jobs that we do are jobs where the technology is nowhere near going to be able to do them. So yes, you can bring in 
some technology into an old age home which will make it a bit more um, productive perhaps but then that doesn't really work very well that often breaks down so if you just go around looking what people do yes there are not when i was a kid i used to have to hand my ticket into somebody would sell me the ticket of the tube and so of course all these things have changed but there are so many jobs whether famously folding towels um getting the bin to the to, from the, the bin men taking the bin to the to the van um, uh, just so many things, brain surgery, where, where you can imagine that technology will make people a bit more productive, but it's not obvious that it's going to replace labour. And as Philip has said, productivity is not going up. As we measure it, there are all sorts of reasons for that. Now, if we were on the cusp of this extraordinary revolution where we weren't going to need workers, we'd either see the same economy produced by fewer workers, we'd have mass employment but very high productivity levels, or we'd see the same labour force producing much more and fantastic economic growth or something between the two. That's the measure of product. We're not seeing that. So we're constantly being told we're on the cusp of this world where we won't need labour and it's all going to be solved by technology. And I'm very sceptical about it. I have, an, I have a chapter about it in my next book and I hope uh, it gets read widely and, and criticised by people. But as far as I can see, and I'm not a technologist, to assume that technology is going to ride over the hill and save us all, is, is naive and unrealistic. Well, I'd also say that this is well known among economists. What's really strange to me is that people go and take economics courses and then come out and most of them want to talk about productivity all the time, right? If you go to the treasury, everyone wants, how do we get productivity up? What, what's the optimal tax uh, change that we can do to get productivity <laughs> up? Whereas the economics of productivity have been pretty well established for 40 to 50 years. The, the main figure behind the economics of productivity is a Nobel Prize winning economist called uh, Robert Solov. And in, 19, in the 1990s, late 1990s or mid 1990s, he had a very, very famous fr phrase that's well known among academic macroeconomists, which is, you can see the productivity of the technology revolution everywhere but in the productivity statistics. And there he was referring to, obviously we think, oh, today we've had this big technological revolution. If you're sitting there in 1995, fax machines, computer, desktop computers had just come in. Arguably, this had been a much more profound uh, uh, change than what we've seen today. We think, oh, we've got ChatGPT now, and it's slightly faster to type, my, uh, to type my article or my legal brief or whatever. I mean, a lot of the technology that came in between you know, the late 70s, early 80s, and 1995 eliminated uh, the need for secretaries on typewriters. I mean, they were visible... Uh, reductions in jobs. When I started working in the 80s, there were messengers who used to take, we used to have uh, carbon copies and we'd write something and someone would write it back. I mean, that's in the 80s. So, so, the, so and, and what Robert Solov pointed out very well was that it, you would have thought between, you know, put a date on a call at 1980 to 1995, the first big office technology revolution, which I think is far bigger than anything we've seen today. We just have kind of forgotten about it. He said, well, well, you think we have a, we have a largely services-based economy, so we're largely people working in offices. I mean, not exclusively, but largely. And otherwise, you're working in a shop and you've got a new scanner. You know, these barcode scanners came in and everything. They weren't there before. Much more complicated system to put tags on things. I mean, think these things through. And he said, with all this big revolution, you'd think productivity would go up, obviously, because you don't need these runners. You don't need to scroll out a carbon copy. I'm sure people listening don't even know what a carbon copy is. I'm just about old enough to know what a carbon copy is. Um, 
you don't need any of these things. Well, you'd think productivity would go up. The, the productivity in the 1990s relative to the 1980s, relative to the 1970s, it slowed down. And they call it the productivity puzzling economics. And this happens everywhere. And I, I mean, I have, everyone's got their own theory. I think it's when you go from manufacturing-based to service-based economies. But ultimately, it doesn't really matter. As an economy becomes more advanced, more developed, productivity gains tend to just fall. And the technologists, frankly, the technologists had their run. It was 1980 to 1995. That's when it, we really went from an analog services economy that the polls partially describing. And even in the 1980s poll, I'd say there was quite a bit of technology relative to the 1970s. We've had, we had that revolution. It didn't really increase productivity that much. And comparing chat GPT as, as interesting as it is, I'm not as impressed as some people, but as interesting as it is, compare that to bringing in fax machines uh, word processing systems, mass telephone systems, mobile phones where you can work on the go. It's not comparable. That was our big technology revolution. The internet. The internet came in, what, mo mostly in by the mid-2000s? And we're claiming that ChatGPT is going to be more important than the internet? So all of these Crazy. things are really important and they drive all sorts of change in our lives and our society, but they don't seem to create a world in which we don't need labour. And that's really our point. Well, however you interpret it, and there are many interpretations of the productivity puzzle, at the end of the day, the critical thing from our perspective is it has not led to the drying up of the demand for labour. What has, you know, why was there an imbalance in employment in the 80s when I was starting in the workplace and not now? I think it's down to the fact that when I went into the workplace in the 80s, there were about two potential entrants for every person leaving uh, just because of the demography. And that was a lot for the economy to absorb. We were still dealing with historic inflation and the monetary experiments to bring it down meant uh, the, the, you had the Nairu, the unemployment, uh, non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, all that stuff. But essentially, there were a lot of people joining the labour force. And now, net inflow and outflow is about the same. So if technology were this extraordinary silver bullet that was going to solve the problem, Try, square the triangle, if you like, and uh, mean that we can continue with very low fertility rate, seriously clamp down on immigration if that's what we want to do, uh, and have, have, have the buoyant economy, the small family, and the stable uh, ethnic mix, and, and that uh, it, technology will be the solution. I'm very dubious. Okay, so scaling back from the technological analogy of total civilizational collapse, one of the things that I am concerned about with technology is not obsolescence of labour force participation, but obsolescence of human relationships. And I think this ties into not just the immigration issue, but the broader issue that I want to taper into near the end of the discussion, which is, as you alluded to before, it's not just government policy that needs to facilitate it. Of course, we can have a policy discussion. I think it's worthwhile, particularly if any politicians are listening. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But what kind of narrative are we telling ourselves to enable us to value children as an intangible good again so that people are actually taking the time out of participating in capitalism to have those children. And the problem with technology is that it can decrease the relational nature of our economy. As you said, there's fewer people on the bus, you haven't got to rely on as many people, you haven't got to be courteous to people, you don't have to interact with anyone to have all of your Amazon goods delivered to your door by drone. You can sit in your pod forever, you know. And so if you're not valuing human beings on a day-to-day -day basis because you don't have to get your goods via them, then how are you going to value human interaction if you're far from your family, renting a property, 
consuming goods as the defining characteristic of what makes a meaningful life. And part of the problem with immigration as well is there is a cultural dimension. It's not just that productivity is stagnated because some people come in, they're treated as universal market actors, but they might hold cultural prejudices, which mean that they're not as productive or they don't participate in the labor force as much. And so productivity is stagnated alongside mass immigration going up. But it also means that if people don't feel like the world on their doorstep looks like a, a place they want to raise their kids in, and they don't know if the, all of the, the classmates in their, in their kids' class are going to hold the same values as them, and they might not make friends, there's going to be that ambient anxiety there of why do I bring kids into this world. So what kind of narrative can we shape against those forces of mass immigration technology to encourage people to have kids? And what policies would be preferable to take up so that people feel encouraged in certain economic circumstances that they can have those kids that they already want, according to the poll? Well, I think I will largely defer to Philip on this, because I think when it comes to questions of technology, culture and society, it's probably better to ask someone who's closer to their 30s than getting on for their 60s. Well, you came in shaming everyone for, well, for not having them yet, so but, that might, but, be, that might but be a start. Nevertheless, what I would say is um, I am Jewish hmm. and moderately observant, and one of the institutions, it's very interesting how in ancient civilizations you can find wisdom that astonishingly suits the modern world. And one of the institutions, the core institutions of the Jewish religion is the Sabbath, which is in the Ten Commandments. And it's been hugely interpreted uh, in Jewish law, what it can, what you can and can't do. So there is this 25 hour period between Friday night and Saturday evening, when it's not only that you can't, you're supposed not to work, and you're supposed to spend time with your family, with your community and worship, you can't drive. So that means you have a community, a synagogue that's nearby, you have friends nearby, there's a locality, you walk uh, to each other's houses. Um, you can't use your iPhone, you can't go to the shops, you can't really consume or produce, to use uh, Philip, Philip's um, uh, term in terms of capitalism. You really have to step out. And I think and I, I, I've, I've been observing this in a period where the iPhone has arrived. And the idea of not looking at it for 25 hours and spending your time with your kids, with your grandkids and walking over to their houses uh, and with your friends, uh, I think that's a very pronatal environment. It's an environment, it's only one day a, a week, it's true, but it is an environment in which family comes to the fore. And it's interesting, I mean, it kind of possibly gets back to Israel. If you look, as I said, at the totally non-observant Jews in the United States, they have an extremely low fertility rate. But those who observe anything, the fertility rate starts to rise. I think it's interesting how an institution like that, which a lot of people would say, well, that's some law in the Bible from like 3,000 years ago, and then it's been endlessly interpreted as to what you can and can't do, and then the rules seem incredibly old-fashioned, and you know, why on earth can't you turn a light on or go get in the car or go down the shops for a newspaper, whatever it is, um, or look at your iPhone. But actually, I think those sorts of institutions can be make an enormous contribution to the kind of society and environment in which you uh, are more inclined to have children and share the burden of children and the joy of children. I spend a lot of time going to my friend's children's weddings these days. And that is also about community and celebrate. And I think something like this, so it's interesting, there was a famous debate between Paul Ehrlich and Julian Simon. I don't know if you know about Julian Simon, but they, Ehrlich was saying, you know, we're running out of resources. He's still saying it in his 90s, God bless him. And, and Simon said the ultimate resource is the human brain. And so on. there was a, this great debate. I mean, Simon was a secular Jew, but he and his wife apparently used to observe the Sabbath 
because they found they didn't necessarily believe in God or necessarily believe that you had to obey all his commandments, but they did find that that institution was very important for their sanity, their mental health and their family life. So I think um, there are kind of two questions. One of them, I mean, from a policy point of view, right? Um, one of them is, well, not two questions, but two kind of streams of policy. One of them are policies that can kind of promote community, for example, um, educational systems people want to actually use, um, and also address kind of what you might call micro-level behavior with certain internet aspects of the internet, shall we say. And then there's kind of macro or large-scale public policy, which is like, how do we just physically get more people to get married and have kids, right? Um, different policies for different, uh, the two different components, let's say. For the kind of micro-level ones, I think the first thing that people should be talking about in Britain is what Americans call voucher school. Like, really, it needs to have been talked about about 10 years ago. Um, I'm not one for the old conservative libertarian uh, style reforms. I don't generally like them. Um, I think they've been a bit clapped out. They've been tried in America for years. A lot of them haven't worked. One that has worked is voucher schools, and why shouldn't it work? And just for people who I'm sure most people know what voucher schools are, but basically rather than getting allocated a place in a, in a, in a random school based on your postcode as it's done here, that your tax, taxpayer money is paying for, you get a voucher you can give that voucher to a local school project and the government funding is directed to that. And the idea then basically is that people who don't really like the contemporary public school system, for example, will join together in social groups with their vouchers and they'll create a school and then all those parents or the more interested ones and the ones engaged in leadership will sit on the boards of that school. And you can possibly top it up. That is a debate in itself. Yeah, right? you get, there's, I mean, once we get over yeah. the hump of the, of the voucher issue, there's a million debates around that. Um, obviously, the big sticking point here has been the teachers' unions, but the, the bigger sticking point is the Conservatives just haven't talked about it. I, I, I don't fully understand why. We mainly imported a lot of the libertarian market-based conservatism into Britain, and we never imported voucher schools. They were talking about it, and Keith Joseph was talking about it in the 70s. And then nobody listened. Happened, yeah. And then nobody listened. I mean, it's very strange because voucher schools, I would say, is one of the actual success stories of the kind of Reagan-Thatcher era. It's one that stuck around. American conservatives don't tend to be very critical these days of voucher schools. Everyone seems to like it and so on. So I think talking about voucher schools is, is, is a really good idea. Um, the, 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 the fact that property prices are so regionally disparate in this country and the fact that those property prices are often driven by the local school catchment areas, as we know, means that uh, there's, there's a big uh, opening there for, for people who want to take active advantage of the voucher school systems. I'm thinking go into towns or areas that aren't so great just go live there. I mean, if, you're, if your main concern is the, is the school system and you don't want to go over there because you think the school system will be a disaster, the school system should be able to sort that out. So um, I think definitely on the, on, the personal, on, the, um, on the micro level one, I think people should be having a very strong discussion about um, voucher schools. I think also we need to raise questions about technologies that are socially destructive. Um, I think this is already happening, you know, with ch should you give children iPhones and so on? We won't have that debate now. That assumes you've already had children, and we haven't got to that point yet. Um, uh, are, are dating apps socially destructive? Should we run a study on that? Maybe. 
Um, we're going to do a, a, an economics of that particular thing later on down the line. Yeah, probably probably internet pornography might be worth a look as well. Yeah, I've been uh, major on that one. So, so can we, like, if these things are massively socially destructive, can we, can we ban them? I mean, frankly. Like, I'm serious, because, like, we ban lots of stuff that's less. I mean, it, it's all study-based. Like, if, I'm, if we're totally wrong about this and, and dating apps lead to infinite happiness and get the birth rate up, fine. And we don't want to go around banning everything that impacts the birth rate, okay. But, but if there's for-profit systems that are actively destroying interpersonal relationships and imposing huge costs on society down the line, I think that's worth a shot. The, uh, well, the starvation model for the pornography stuff, we've already got a model in the States of where various states have imposed age verification laws. And rather than create the infrastructure to verify the identity of the user, they've just blocked it in that state because so much traffic comes from underage viewers that they're just not turning a profit from their ad revenue. So that just means that you're killing off the business by the nature of meaning that only the, the adults that are meant to be viewing it are viewing it. Well, the next step on that is study the impact on the marriage rate, divorce rate, and fertility rate. Yes. That would be very interesting. That would be a fascinating social experiment. And also killing the pill will kill the porn industry. So That's a bigger discussion. <laughs> I think there are lots of socially conservative policies we could discuss, and some of us would support some of them, and I'm somewhat more on the libertarian end of the spectrum but i think one enormous step forward in terms of policy which we kind of lose sight of is we have never had a government in this country after 50 years of sub-replacement fertility levels which says we are not having enough children and we need to have more and that just starting that just getting there would be it now when it says that it'd be good if it had a few policies up its sleeves i agree but i think it's still pretty much unsayable by politicians and beyond so I think in terms of my own agenda, I would feel we'd moved forward enormously if we just ended up with an administration that said, this is an issue and we've absolutely got to crack it. Prime so Minister I, I, Miriam Cates, yeah. Well, so it, it, it was, uh, speedily to, in our day. Well, exactly. Sorry to interject, but I was like, I was very disappointed there wasn't a full panel on it, on it at ARC. For, for whatever reason there, there wasn't, it would have been great to have a birth rates discussion, hopefully at the next one, you know, because it is, it is the prime. We did a so. podcast with Miriam and Eric, actually, the four of us, so, yes. a, a, around ARC, mm. so hopefully that will be on at some point. I'll, I'll just make the fat pitch for the, for the big government version of the policy that, that Paul isn't as supportive as, uh, of as I am. Um, <laughs> and we want to be a little bit careful about this, but I just, it's been my favourite way of framing it. Everyone says, like, can you provide incentives for people to have children en masse, right? That's ultimately the question. And that's what places like Hungary and so on are experimenting with. I, I really just want to get people's mindset into this space, into a certain space, and then I think we can have a broader discussion. Probably not now, but just to get people to think about it. Can you incentivize people to have children through tax, spending, etc.? Well, the way I've been pitching it is think of it this way. If we offered everybody a million pounds to have a child, or a million pounds per child they had, would people have more children? I mean, logically, of course they would, right? It's a million pounds. Of course you'd have it. If, you, if you're in any position where you could have a child in any relatively normal circumstances, you'll go, I'll get a million pounds. Now, obviously, that wouldn't work because the economy would collapse. <laughs> it would be hyperinflation. But what I've been trying to point out to people here is that means it's a matter of price. If we all agree in principle that a million pounds will get people to have children, then it's only a question of marginal price. Is it 500,000? Then it's probably too much. Is it 100,000? Probably too much. Well, depends how it's distributed. 50? 20. What is it? 
And then the other side of the ledger, I know I hate to be so cynical about this, but I think it really is a discussion we're going to have to have. The other side of the ledger is cost. We've, we've discussed for most of this podcast the long-term cost of not doing this. They're so big, they, they scale right up to complete economic collapse, let's be frank. And even at the very lower end, soaring uh, government debt rates, they're not theoretical. 250% as Paul said in Japan. Spending now is probably worth not spending later. And this should, I think we're probably going to work on a paper on this in the future, but this, it should be at least somewhat calculable. So I just say on the kind of macro policy level, we could talk about what's happening in Hungary. Maybe we can, but I just get people into that space. In theory, there should be a point at which it will work. We, we should all be able to agree on that. And where that point is, I think the culture will determine. So I think you can, determine. in the right culture, that point doesn't need to be at a level that will bankrupt but, but the exchequer. But in purely economic terms, if that point is lower than the future costs, it is worth doing from a public policy point of view. And we need to figure out those numbers. My sense is that point is much lower than the potential public costs in the future. But, you know, that's a, that will be... That would be a part of a vision to completely retool the state and the welfare system. Get the get birth rates. I'm not that comfortable having children and discounted cash flows in the same uh, paragraph, but I, I do understand where you're coming from. <laughs> Have Hungary been very successful? Because I've heard rumblings that they've had a, a slight uptick. Do you think it's going to be sustainable? Because I think the headline number in Hungary that no one can do. There, there's a lot of, I'm going to be absolutely frank here, there's a lot of noise being put, up that, put out that the Hungarian policy doesn't work. And frankly, that's because the only think tanks that study this stuff are in America and they tend to be more libertarian. I'll be just very frank about that. And they have gotten, I won't name names, they have gotten a little bit better, but um, I don't think there hasn't been a serious debate on this. It's been very one-sided. The headline number that I, the, the birth rate's gone up, people debate that. The abortion rate's gone down, people debate that. The di divorce rate's uh, fallen, people haven't debated that one so much. The headline number that I would say that no one will debate because it's just so large, it's so statistically anomalous, it's so clearly driven by the policy is the marriage rate has doubled in like five years. Now, that's a very large, you know, when the birth rate's gone up from 1.3 to 1.6 and you can go, you know, mm, is it a wiggle? Is it driven by a recover, a general recovery in the region? We see a little uptick in the Romanian birth rates and all the libertarian types will, will bombard you with those numbers and say, Hungary hasn't worked. Marriage rates doubled. Silence. Because marriage also, rates don't just double. It's also <laughs> gone up from 1.2 or 1.3 to 1.6 at a time when the world generally has gone down. So although it hasn't gone back to replacement level, Hungary at one point, I believe, was just about at the bottom of the pile. Well, well the counter-argument is that you can give regional examples that also went up. That region went through a very, very difficult period and that it bounced back. Now, uh, that's a huge debate, whatever. But I'm just saying the marriage rate doubled. I've not seen any single person who denies that the marriage rate in Hungary doubled because of the family policy system there. And mm. doubling your marriage rate? doesn't seem terrible to me. Well, especially if your goal is more cohesive families, it's going to lead to more and, and this, a friend of mine is working over in Hungary in the government at the moment. He's an American guy. We wrote some of our early uh, demographic stuff. His name is Gladden Papa. And he's always said, he's actually been communicating with them there as well. Don't focus family policy so much on raising fertility rates. Of course, that's the end goal. It's about fostering families. It's about, it's about converting the state goals away from the individual and toward the family as a unit. 
that should be the entire goal. And if, if the birth rate doesn't go up at all for five years and the marriage rate doubles, you should consider that as a threat. Yeah, because presently, if we increase the birth rate with current incentives and conditions, you're still going to have 50% of kids in the UK raised between two households, and that's maladaptive. And incidentally, that predicts lower future birth rates than those children. Yeah, because they won't be incentivized to model after their parents, having That's a cohesive right. family unit, and so they're not going to have their own kids, and the cycle begins anew. Right, all very encouraging then, gents. Is there anything else you wanted to add? And of course, please do relevant plugs, not just for the report, but for your own personal work. Well, I think I've mentioned my own book, Procreate or Perish. I hope it will be published next year. I think there is a space for a book on pronatalism. It, I don't really think that book exists yet, although I think there are other people working on it. So the more the, more the merrier. We need a, a, a great rise in the number of pronatalist texts one way or another to uh, act as a precursor to a rise in the birth rate, I hope. Well, you absolutely have an invitation to come back and discuss that, probably with uh, one of the dads that works in the office in the chair as well, just to just help drive it home. Uh, Philip, anything relevant? Not particularly on the birth rate stuff. I think Paul and I will continue to do um, papers on that. I have a weekly column at Unheard on general economic matters. You'll probably see me in other newspapers and outlets and so on as well. We're do we, have we run a geopolitics podcast called Multipolarity, which is, is doing quite well. It's on a completely different topic, but if people are interested in the crazy changes going on in the world right now, um, they might check that out. Okay, well, I'll be sure to include that as a link in the description. Gents, this has been invigorating. We'll have to have you back. You'll have to talk to my, my colleague Dan about economics at some point as well. But all right, thank you very much for watching, everyone. And until next time, goodbye.